Hello and welcome to the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast series. This series has been developed to assist you to master your health and well-being. Health is too hard when you try to go it alone, and we know that together we are healthier. Today on the show, we'll be discussing pain with Professor Lorimer Mosley. Lorimer is a physiotherapist and pain scientist. He has authored 340 papers and five books. He has a long-standing interest in using contemporary and innovative methods to translate contemporary pain science into concepts and languages that clinicians and patients can both understand and then integrate into their own decision-making. His contribution to the pain field has been recognized by the University of South Australia's first Doctor of Science Award, Honorary Fellowship at the Australian Faculty of Pain Medicine, Australia and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, honoured membership of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and awards from government or community groups in 14 countries. The interview with Lorimer took place over the phone with him interstate, so the sound quality may be a little different to previous podcasts, but this enables us to bring you some amazing guest speakers. Lorimer Mosley, welcome to the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast. Thank you very much. Firstly, can you explain the mechanics and reason behind pain? <laughs> that is such a hard question. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't think anyone can fully explain it. So the, the mechanics of pain—that's easy because it's, it's not a mechanical thing, right? So pain is a is a feeling that you get. Uh, so it's necessarily a, a conscious event. And that hopefully will feed into the second part of the question. So that aspect of it, that it's a, it's a conscious feeling, really speaks to the second part of your, your question because we, we actually do know a lot more in the scientific space about uh, how it is that we come to experience pain when uh, our body might be in trouble. Uh, it's, very, it's very complex and it's one of those situations where uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a bit odd in that you know everyone knows what pain is. When you say what is pain, they say, well, I know what pain is. I I feel it. It's in my knee or it's in my back or something like that. So although we all have our personal experience and and knowledge about pain, it, that's a doesn't mean that it's easy to to understand the biological processes that underpin it if if I was to say really quickly uh, here's what I think is the answer to your question and, and I'd have to say it like that because you know, as scientists we change as the as the evidence comes in and as the experiments are done we develop new theories and then we prove them wrong and all that sort of stuff but at the moment there is consensus around the, the world of, of pain researchers and pain experts that Pain is a is a conscious feeling that your brain produces, and that's that's not strictly true. There'll be someone listening to this who says, "Aha, a brain sitting on a pillow couldn't produce pain," which would be true. So the human has to produce it, but I like to think of it as the last organ that touched it, sort of thing, um, like those ball games we used to play as kids. You're the last one to touch it. The the brain uh, is is the most obvious organ to be producing the feelings we have. The reason the brain does that in its simplest form is that it has received a message from the body saying something is dangerous here. And then the brain evaluates the the entire context of that situation. What else is going on? What's going on in my life? What's going on in my environment? Is there anything more important? 
And it's effectively making the decision, should I put this event or put this need for action into consciousness so that the human will do something? And that process, the, the process by which the brain does that is has been fascinating uh, scientists for decades and it's been making many scientists tear their hair out because it's so complex and it's so individual. So we tend to think of it almost as though you have an internal protection meter uh, that is a, you know, it's a set of processes and when that pro protection meter, or we call it a protectometer, when the protectometer reaches a critical threshold, it reflects the brain deciding that this human needs to do something in order to keep this body part safe. And the thing that will motivate the human to do that is pain. Where is the most common place on the body that people experience pain? And how common is it? The most common area of your body where you might have persisting pain. And we can talk more about persisting pain later if you like, but the most common of those problems is low back pain. Uh, and in fact, even acute low back pain is, is very common. Uh, almost everyone will have an episode uh, of acute low back pain that is sufficiently brutal to stop them in their tracks and make them think they've done something really bad to their back. Most people will experience that. Uh, as far as the persisting pain problems, back pain, neck pain, knee pain, particularly in, in older people, headaches and migraines, shoulder pain, and then all the others sort of slowly become less and less common. But the big kahuna, without a doubt, is back pain or back and neck pain. So what are the most common causes for the injuries that create back pain? We don't know. That's the pro That's one of the, the massive barriers to us understanding this. The evidence that has been gathered through many research groups and, and millions and millions of dollars and euros and pounds of research money paints a pretty clear picture that the majority of back pain episodes, we can't find a specific injury. And what we mean by that is with our best imaging technology, people will be familiar with things like MRIs and CT scans and x-rays, and with the, the most reliable clinical tests, so they're the tests that a physiotherapist or a doctor might perform on you, the majority of back pain episodes, we can't be sure what tissue within the back, the, the back is an anatomically very complex part of the body, we can't know, you know what, what tissue has been compromised and in fact it gets, it gets more difficult because we can't actually know whether it has a lot of the time because what we now know is that back pain uh, can be associated with you know, really horrible back pain, can be associated with something like uh, a fracture. Uh, or a, an injury to the uh, the disc that lies between two vertebrae, or exactly the same brutal pain could be related to no injury at all, but enough information coming from the back to say you're getting close and the brain responds by protecting in the best way it knows how. The management of those situations, with some exceptions, isn't very different. It's a really massive challenge for the person in back pain because it feels so much like you must have damaged tissue. But as far as we know, the reality is that probably more often than not, there's no significant damage to tissue. 
the way that we can you know be more confident on saying oh yeah okay we think there's been some significant damage there we rely on the nature of the onset of the pain and that's normal it normally will tell us about what were the forces on the back when the pain started there'll be people listening who have experienced this because it's it's not rare where they bend over forward pick up a sock off the ground that's not a very heavy object and they have a sudden brutal back pain now when we when we try to make sense of that the forces on the back in that situation cannot explain the back pain they're not enough to have caused a major injury so the only thing that would make us wonder about you know does this person have some vulnerability is some of the other things they might describe that develop straight after the back pain which but not their level of pain uh, and that's uh, that's in some ways that's really good news because you can everyone can be reassured that when it comes to the back things usually hurt more than the amount of the injury and there are a lot of potential reasons for that so that's the reassuring aspect of the information that in the vast majority of acute back pain cases it will resolve in time we just wish it would resolve more quickly because it's horrible the less reassuring bit is that if if you are someone with back pain and you are convinced that you have damage and the reason you're convinced of that is because it hurts so much then you will be stuck in a in a in a time warp of a revolving door uh, because we know that being convinced that you have damage will increase your pain and increasing your pain will reinforce the conviction that you've got damage and then we're in a really problematic vicious cycle it's tricky right yeah yeah so is, is this what you mean when you say pain is the end result uh yeah in a, in a way yeah if you if we go back to that idea of the protector meter yeah and if the listeners can try to visualize a bit like a thermometer right and if if on that thermometer the you know 100 degrees instead of being the boiling point of water 100 degrees in your internal protectometer in the thermometer it's not measuring temperature it's measuring the perceived need so that the brain and the body's evaluation of whether you need to protect yourself that's what it's measuring and if it gets over a particular level the system produces pain if you can imagine that right the system all of our bodily systems are actually working to protect us all the time and they are all ramping up all the time so the very last thing that happens within within the human is the production of pain because that that's a sign that that the system has said okay i can't fix this problem i can't turn off the danger messages i can't get this body part out of danger simply by using the systems that the person doesn't know about and those systems would include your muscle system so you start moving differently your immune system so you release immune molecules your sympathetic nervous system so your heart rate increases a bit all of these systems can be recruited but the end result of all of that processing if the problem's not solved is to recruit a feeling and the people that I've dealt with and in our research studies that get the biggest shifts uh, in their chronic pain journey are the people who can both 
uh, understand and endorse the idea of pain being a feeling that is produced in order to make you protect yourself. Most of the people listening, uh, when they first hear that, will think, well, that's stupid. And, and that's, that's a sign of a high-functioning human if you think that's stupid when you first hear it. But as you learn about that and you keep hearing it in different ways and, and good health professionals take the time to, to really explain that to, to you and you take the time to go to all the resources out there and learn about it, it starts to make beautiful sense and it starts to be very intuitive and it starts to explain a lot of the, the experiences that people with chronic pain have. For example, people with chronic pain can do exactly the same task on two different, two different days. One day, no problem. The next day, they have brutal flare-up of their pain and they're in bed for three days. If pain was not the end result but was the beginning, we can't explain that scenario. But if pain is the end result where the system is taking into consideration not just messages from that body part but everything else that's going on in your life, all the information available to you, all the information you've got stored within your system, then we can explain those, those amazingly different scenarios. So it's a journey, you know, our, our research and there's several research groups around the world who are focused on this idea of how, how do we get this beautiful magic information about pain and how it works and how the system learns to be more effective at protecting you and how you can retrain the system to be, to be less protective again. All of the research coming in says that, that when people really understand that and go with it, then uh, their ability to self-manage their situation and actually recover is back on the table. That, that possibility is back on the table and that's very exciting possibility. The, <laughs> the problem is that it's hard to do that. So let me get this straight. What you're saying is that it's possible that someone's pain system could be overprotective, if you like. And if that's the case, then it's also possible to retrain the brain so it's not overly protective? Is that correct? Yeah, that's. I, I would say that's broadly correct. Uh, and the only, the only changes I would make are that it's probable, actually, that if you have pain for a long time, your pain system will become overly protective. So we, we say it becomes overprotective. And that means that this part of your body actually becomes overprotected. Right, so we un we now understand a lot about how that happens and and what happens inside the the nerve pathways and the processing centres and different parts of your brain. We understand that much better than we did thirty years ago. And then the second part of your question, or your your capture of it, which was really nice, is that we now know that that we can retrain. And I would say instead of saying the brain, but that, that's a big part of it. We can retrain the pain system to be less protective again. And the brain is a big part of the pain system. Uh, so it's not it's not like that I think what you said was, was wrong, but uh, it's, it's that I think uh, if we just talk about retraining the brain, we forget some of the important parts of that journey that involve retraining the body. 
uh, and retraining you know, your, your spinal cord, those sorts of things. Right. So can you take us through what, for you, are the most effective treatments for back pain? Mm, well, rather than rely on my personal opinion, although it does align very closely to that, which is the, the official evidence-based position. Right. right? So for the official evidence-based position around the world is remarkably consistent. So when it comes to back pain, as much as any other health condition, guidelines around the world are consistent in what they conclude is the best treatment. And the, the basis of that conclusion is scientific studies, big comparisons, uh, and it's, we call it evidence. So it's all evidence-based, right? The most important things for the management of, and if I stick in the first instance to chronic back pain because more listeners out there will have chronic back pain or chronic knee pain or shoulder pain, the, the recommendations are very similar regardless of what part of your body we're talking about. Uh, will have chronic problems, not acute problems. Uh, and acute problems, we would say, are problems that started within the last three months. If it started longer than that ago, then we call it a chronic problem. The, so back to the consistent, what's the best treatment? The very best treatments we have are education. And what that, you know, a lot of people can hear that and go, oh, that's stupid. Actually, Education is, is really difficult to do for health professionals because, you know, we, all of us health professionals, I'm a physiotherapist and physios and chiros and sports trainers and doctors can think we're good at education because we give out the right brochures, right? Or we say to someone, look, it's going to be all right. We now know, and my research group is one of a few that, that is really pushing this inquiry, we now know that Education is difficult because the point of education is for people to learn new information. So we should really say, what's the most effective treatment agreed around the world? Uh, and that is that people with chronic back pain or wherever it is in the body learn the, the contemporary or the current way of understanding the problem. So I would say to anyone, ask your physio, ask your doctor, uh, can you help me to understand the latest thinking on what chronic pain is, how it's caused, and what I can do about it? And they could have questions like, can you tell me how to understand whether my pain system is being overprotective? Uh, can you give me some indications of how I can train it to be less protective again? Can you tell me whether I'm safe to do movements, even though they might hurt? They're really the three really important questions. So, an education comes in really into the answer to those sorts of questions. That's the first thing. Uh, the next most important thing is uh, what we would describe as active and psychological therapies. And by active therapies, it really means anything that you do rather than things that are done to you. So examples of active strategies, and it's horses for courses. You, know, you have to work with your clinician to pick, okay, what's, what's gonna be the best active strategy for you? They might include a range of things, broadly any type of exercise that works for you and that you're safe to do. 
but other active strategies are things like uh, meditation uh, and mindfulness and yoga uh, and actually going to learn about it so actually looking on Professor Google for good quality uh, evidence-based information that's an active strategy passive strategies include things like taking pills getting injections uh, having someone massage you these are all things that are passive strategies and the evidence around the world is agreed that active is better than passive the next thing is psychological therapies uh, this is a really difficult one for people in pain to get their head around because uh, unless they understand what we now know pain to be then it makes no sense to pursue psychological therapies because your pain is in your back for example you know, and, and people often find themselves thinking well there's nothing wrong with my head and and that's that's likely to be true but what we also know is that there are psychological strategies that can help you retrain your system to be less protective again my belief uh, and this is not stated in the official rule book so this is now my belief and it's based on research is that none of the things like your active and psychological strategies will be as effective if people don't first learn don't first understand why they're good things to do so back to your question I'll, I'll try to be really sharp and succinct with the answer to the question the best treatments we have for chronic back pain and chronic pain elsewhere in your body are education active and psychological therapies and self-management skills so things that you can do during the day to manage the situation as you slowly retrain your system to recover. One of the questions you said that a person should ask their physio or their doctor is how will they know when it's safe to start moving again even if they are still experiencing pain when somebody comes into you and says, I need to know when to start moving this area of my body yeah. but I'm still yeah. in pain there. Yeah, uh, that will depend on the person asking it. Uh, and the uh, the appraisal of their particular situation. And if I give you uh, a very common scenario and then a very uncommon scenario, you hopefully will see how that it's dependent on the individual. So the most common scenario, let's say someone with who's had back pain for months or years, uh, and it hurts to move, we know we've we've done the medical checkup, we've done we know, understand the the, the history of that condition because the person's told us about it uh, it is almost without exception very safe to move and in fact not only is it very safe to move it's critical to move and it's critical to put mechanical loads through that body part the challenge is to put is to move enough to cause an adaptation in the system so that it gets stronger and more mobile but not to do so much that you flare up your pain because that's a, that's horrible when, you, when your pain flares up. But you might notice that I didn't say not so much as to re-injure the body part. And the reason I didn't say that is that our understanding of how this pain system gets more and more effective and becomes overprotective is that it will stop you from re-injuring or injuring this body part so long as you progress slowly because because it will be overprotective. So that's when all those other skills, like some of the psychological skills and self-management things come in, so that you can manage uh, increasing your movement and your load on the tissues, which, will, which, are, which is often, often involves being in some degree of pain, 
after that. But you can work out how much you can or how quickly you can progress without giving yourself that really brutal increase in pain that we call a flare-up. So the answer to the question for most people will be you are, you're safe to move and as long as you progress things slowly, your system won't let you damage anything because it's, it's overprotective now. Then there's the very uncommon situation where someone, uh, and these are very rare situations, but someone might have a uh, some disease state that gives them uh, tissues that are not as strong as they should be in someone their age and size. Uh, and if the clinician says, yeah, no worries, you go and do what you want, that may be putting that person at risk. But it's only a few questions and answers between the informed health professional and the individual in pain that will tell that health professional, hang on, we might have to just investigate this issue first. But I, I, I'd say it again, that's rare. The very common scenario is the, is the first one. And it's so common that uh, in a lot of the, the public education that goes on around the world, a key message is you are safe to move. Now that doesn't mean you are safe to run a marathon or you're safe to pick up the heaviest box you've picked up in five years. It means you are safe to move. Some movement is nearly always good uh, and the only way it won't be good will be detected by the right questions from the clinician immediately. So you can be cleared that you're safe to move very quickly even on the phone with a with a good thinking contemporary physio or exercise person or doctor. You've said that staying active is important even if you are experiencing pain. Uh, how is this beneficial to somebody who's in pain to keep active? Yeah, that's a really, really important question and it's, it's a question that uh, comes up a, a a lot when we are doing sort of broad community education programs. We, and the question is similar to what you've said, you know, well, I'm a very active person, uh, but I'm always in pain when I'm very active. My response to that will be, okay, so there's, a, there's space here for us to understand more about your pain uh, and ask particular questions with particular answers that may reveal that a slight shift in activity uh, might be helpful, a different kind of activity or a different pattern of activity and rest. Uh, in my experience, a lot of a lot of those people are the are the really active people who uh, actually are not giving their bodies the critical one or two day windows of rest to adapt to the loads they're giving them during the, during the activity. Uh, the other thing that we see a lot is that people say, yeah, yeah, I'm active, but I still have pain. And when we ask them more about that, their pain's not caused by their activity. And in both of those two situations, we can explore where, when, when the person in pain has the courage and the open-mindedness to explore uh, a really important question, and that is, what else is contributing to your pain? And Everyone in pain has multiple contributions to their pain. Uh, and that goes back to that idea of pain being the end result. 
right? So the brain considers everything when it's deciding whether or not to protect you, uh, not just the information coming from the tissues of your body, but but we will use that question. We will say, okay, so you're you're an active person. We know that active is better than passive. Uh, the, you know, the official evidence says that. But what I hear from you is that uh, despite your activity levels, you're still in pain. And the responsible clinician should make sure that there's no, we call them red flags, there's no information that would require more investigation. And once we've cleared that, then we start exploring, okay, so even though you're doing that part of the, the treatment well, you know, the recommended treatment, you're being active, what else might be contributing to your pain and what else might you be able to do to retrain that pain system to be less protective? Maybe it's a case of changing your schedule of activity. Maybe it's a case of changing the type of activity. Maybe it's a case of looking beyond activity for contributions to your pain. And that last one is is the you know a, a big question, and a lot of health professionals are nervous about asking that question because a lot of people in pain, as soon as they hear that question, they think, "So you're saying it's not real, uh, or you're saying it's all in my head." Uh, and the answer is no, they're not saying that. What they're saying is everything that, that the science of pain tells us says that humans have multiple contributions to their pain. Would you like to explore how, how you can make that knowledge work for you? That's the sort of question that I would like to see the physio asking. Would you like to explore the other things that might be contributing to your pain and what you might be able to do about it. Would you like to explore how you can make this wonderful adaptive system in our body work for you rather than you seem to be working for it? Does that make sense? And also, in attempting to stay active, does the type of movement matter? So you're encouraging people to stay active through pain. Is there a preferred range of activities or type of movements that you do you recommend no not not for everyone right so uh, the the evidence is is getting stronger and stronger that it doesn't matter too much what you do so long as you do something and you do it regularly and you do it in in a sensible progressive way you know, and that's where we like to suggest people have a have a coach uh, if they're struggling to do that, and that coach might be a physio or exercise person uh, who understands modern pain science, but we can't. We, well, there's no evidence to suggest. Look, the best thing you can possibly do is activity A or exercise A. That doesn't work across the board. But it's up to the the person in pain to work with their coach. And I think the most important question is, what sort of activity will you enjoy the most? Right. Uh, for some people, that's you know, that's yoga. For other people, it's dancing. For some people, uh, you know, it might be Pilates, something like that. Um, I think that's a really important question. And then it's up to the the, the person in pain and the coach to work out. Okay, so what's what's going to be most enjoyable? What's most feasible? You know, is it easy for you to get to the dance club? And if it's impossible for you to get there, well, can you do it on TV? Like, is there whatever a YouTube dance coach, or maybe that's not the way. Maybe for you, it's a it's a walking club. 
you know, those. It really, the data suggests, it doesn't matter what you do, so long as it works for you. And of course, we want to stop the pain from happening as soon as possible. So, is it possible to speed up recovery? Uh, well, yeah, that's a really lovely question. Uh, if we're talking about after an acute injury, I think it is possible to speed up recovery, but it comes down to the same same things. Understand what you've done, understand what the tissue needs to do to heal, and understand how you might be able to uh, facilitate that. And usually it's about putting the right amount of load through those tissues. So enough load to make those tissues adapt and heal, but not so much load that that you impair that process. And again, a a good physio will understand and will be able to coach you through that. It'll make recovery a bit quicker. but it, as I say that, I just want to just want to make a point that I think is really, really important, and that all of this talk that I that I include about physios and exercise physiologists and people like that, you might be able to notice that I'm not talking about things they do to you. Yeah. You know, like you go to a physio three times a week. I'm not I'm not saying that. The I think the the most important role for that health professional is a coach and an educator to give you the skills. To master your recovery, right? They don't do stuff to you. They give you the skills for you to do active stuff. And remember that active is not just physically active. Can we facilitate recovery? Well, I'd probably say the target should be: can we remove the barriers to recovery? Right. The 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 most consistent thing, if you, if you hurt yourself, the most consistent thing between individuals is how quickly the tissue heals. That's the most consistent thing. The least consistent thing is what it feels like. All right. So if I give an example of that, two people might bend over and pick up a box that's a lot heavier than they thought it was and they have identical, uh, very small ligament strains in their back, maybe on the outside of their disc. A lot of disc injuries are just ligament strains right, in the disc. They might have an identical injury, but one person might hardly feel a thing and wake up the next day just a little bit stiff and go about life. Another person might have brutal pain that day, very painful the next day, uh, and and have a different approach to it. So the, the least consistent thing between those individuals is the end result, the pain production. The most consistent thing is the healing of that injury. My, my next question you, you've already kind of talked about this throughout a lot of your answers, but I want to get down to a more uh, specific um, explanation of it. Mindfulness. What's your understanding of mindfulness? What do you see its role in pain recovery? Yeah, great. So that, it's a really important question because it allows me to be really clear that I'm no expert on mindfulness. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a mindfulness researcher, I'm not a clinician, who I'm not a psychologist. I will give you my impression as a neuroscientist, someone who studies how the brain works, and pain scientist, but not as a clinical psychologist because I don't have that knowledge or skill. From my perspective, I think uh, mindfulness involves a, an intentional manipulation of what the brain is, is attending to and what the person is doing in response to that. 
if it has a role in chronic pain, I think it I think it does for some people. And I would say I would talk about that in exactly the same way I talk about you know someone might choose dancing, someone might choose Pilates, someone might choose walking program. When you're looking at psychological strategies that we know can can help you manage pain, so there's there's good evidence to say that as a general rule, people who learn mindfulness strategies really well uh, do manage their pain better. Uh, so we know that it has a potential role there and importantly it's an active strategy even though you, you, you're sitting still for it or lying sometimes uh, it's an active strategy and in fact mindfulness can become a, a, a routine part of your day uh, where you actually stop and, and you attend to the, the things that you're feeling without responding to them you know without being immediately worried or, or having to get out of that situation. There's very clear evidence that it is one of several effective strategies to help people manage their pain or by which people can manage their pain better. But you have to learn the skill. Again, it's not a quick fix. You've got to learn how to do it. And some people find it very difficult to learn how to do it. Something that we haven't spoken about so far is surgery. Should it play a role? And if so, when and why or why not? Yeah, it's uh, if if we're talking about, I'll start with back pain. Yeah. Uh, so the again the official the official evidence based guidelines around the world uh, rule out so they exclude most types of surgery, uh, but there are exceptions to that. So there are situations, particularly after traumatic injury, you know, like a car accident or something like that. Uh, where there is clear evidence that uh, the nervous system is compromised because of some structural problem. So what what I mean by that is that there there might be uh, worsening pins and needles and numbness, let's say around your saddle area uh, or in a particular part of your leg, or you can't work particular muscles very well anymore. And in some of those situations, surgery is indicated. The general recommendations, and I'm not a surgeon, but the general recommendations in the evidence-based statements around the world pretty much suggest don't do surgery for back pain, just as a back pain, uh, just for back pain. So without what we call a neurological compromise, so without evidence that your spinal cord is being uh, disrupted by this, the messages can't get through, and you, you can tell that if things stop working. You can't feel a part of your body or you can't move a part of your body or you can't hang on to your wee or your poo. Those sorts of things, they do become sometimes quite urgent reasons for surgery. But if the problem is pain, the evidence-based statements say, don't do it because the outcomes are just not good enough. In fact, there's there's an entire condition called failed back surgery syndrome where people have had surgery for back pain and their lives afterwards are worse than they ever thought they would be. Now, you've mentioned persistent pain and non-persistent pain. Is it the extent of the injury or trauma? How do some pains persist and others not persist? (laughs) Yeah, this is the $64,000 question. I mean, if we... uh, We've just had a whole three hours on this very question here in a you know, think tank that I'm involved with with a few people around the world. And it's a question that we revisit once a year to see is there any new 
are there any new leads on this question of can we predict at the time of injury or within the first two weeks who will recover and who will not recover? Because you can see that's a val- that's a really valuable question, right? Yeah. And and if we could predict the ones that weren't going to recover, we could spend more resources on trying to get them to recover. Unfortunately, we we're only slightly better than chance at doing that. So uh, we can't really predict. However, what we do, what the what the data clearly show us, and this is hopefully surprising to many people listening, is that we we know that the type of injury, the severity of the injury, except for if you have a spinal cord injury, and that's, you know, that's very, very severe, but let's say we rule out that. The type of injury, the severity of the injury, and uh, the, the gender of the person don't predict the outcome. Although persistent pain is more common in women than it is in men, so there is a there is a risk factor associated with just being a female versus being a male. The really important part of the data that are really clear is that we can't predict outcome on the basis of the injury. Most powerful predictors are things like your expectations of recovery. So these these are these are more powerful predictors. They don't explain everything, and we we still can't. You know, be 100% sure, and we can't even can't even be sort of more than 60% sure of which category someone will fall into. But the most powerful predictors are what you expect to happen now, how much you're worried about this, and how convinced you are that you've got an injury in your body that won't fix itself. So, where can people seek help with their pain? What What's the best first port of call, if you like? Well, I think the first thing that anyone in pain should should do in pain that's worrying them or hasn't resolved like they would expect it should is to get yourself checked out. So you can do that with a, a good current thinking physiotherapist who can exclude anything that would require further investigations or a GP. Many people who have, uh, who are in pain will see their GP and that's, that's a good thing to do. And the main purpose of that visit uh, is to exclude anything that will require more investigation or uh, more, you know, some sort of more drastic treatment. So they're, they're unusual diseases or uh, genetic conditions or things like that. Uh, and then what can people do? Well, I'm, it, the, <laughs> the problem out there is that there are, uh, as there are in anything, there are good health professionals and there are less good health professionals. So in a way, the person in pain has to has to make sure they've got a good health professional and there are a few ways that they can do that but I'd go back to those same those same questions uh, can you teach me uh, so that I understand what this problem involves can you tell me whether my pain system is being overprotective can you teach me how to train it to be less protective or you know, that's, it's not going to be a doctor usually because they don't have time. So that, you know, can you refer me to someone who can teach me this stuff and can try and help me train my system to be less protective? That, that health professional, I, I don't think that necessarily has to be a physiotherapist or a, 
exercise person or a chiro or anything like that. But if you've got persistent pain, if you've had this for a long time, then you will need you will normally need a health professional with a higher level of understanding of modern pain science and modern pain management. Of those sort of allied health professions and doctors, there's not many of those people around. The the Physiotherapy Association is working very hard to train up physiotherapists so that they have a special uh, qualification and recognition of having a high level understanding and expertise in treating people with persistent pain. Uh, I don't think the other allied health professions have started that journey yet, uh, but I certainly think they should. But I would say, you know, what people can do immediately now is find reputable information about contemporary ways of treating back pain uh, or treating pain in general. And can you suggest Uh, some of those sources? Well, I can. I'm self-conscious about suggesting some of them because they're, they're resources that I've developed and you know, books that I've written. Uh, but on a more, maybe on a more global sense, I mean, the, uh, the painrevolution.org uh, is, a, is a place to go and to find a resources tab. And if you go there, that will list a whole lot of things, including my stuff, but not limited to it. Uh, that people could go and look at YouTube videos and uh, they can even do online courses to help understand these things better. And if you're turned off by that, you know, they can they can look at very short, interactive uh, videos, read very readable books. Uh, so I would say go to something like painrevolution.org on your computer or on your phone and start looking around. And the general rule, there are exceptions to this, but the general rule is that if it's a website that ends in org or gov, you don't have to spend as much time working out if it's quality or not because those two places, org and gov, G-O-V, are much less likely to be trying to convince you to buy something that's not necessarily the best thing for you. Professor Lorimer Mosley, thank you very much for joining us today on the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast. That was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope this hasn't put too many listeners into a spin, but in a way, spin is the first the first step out of the cycle. So maybe that's a good thing. But thanks very much for having me, Simon. Thank you. It's a new dawn in health insurance because GMHBA are partnering with AIA Vitality to encourage us to be healthier by rewarding healthy choices. Join GMHBA V Plus with AIA Vitality to earn real rewards for health checks, exercising, even eating well. Changing how you think about health insurance for life. GMHBA and AIA Vitality. Healthier together.